Hey there, podcast listener. In order to keep our show free to download, we have to remove the full versions of the songs that we listen to during the interviews. But if you want to hear this episode in its entirety, go to threesongstories.org or just download the WGCU app to your phone and find us there. One, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories. This is the place where musical memories are transformed into heartfelt stories. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest this episode is New York-based visual and performing artist Jen Ray. Jen was born in Raleigh, North Carolina, and got her BFA from Winthrop University in Rock Hill, South Carolina. She now lives in New York City, but before that, she was living and working in Berlin, Germany. Her work has been exhibited primarily throughout the United States and Germany. And digging into her background for this recording, I came across a great quote from a review of her 2013 solo show in Berlin called Better to Reign in Hell Than Serve in Heaven that I thought did a pretty good job of describing her work, quote, her large format colored drawings impress with their obsessively meticulous execution and are characterized by motifs from a variety of pop culture sources. Women are the center of attention whose power, beauty, and cruelty are presented in the midst of an apocalyptic fantasy world, end quote. Jen is a multidisciplinary artist whose work includes drawing, painting, performances, and sound works that celebrate female power and self-determination. She's in town for a show called Blind Date at the Wasmer Art Gallery here at FGCU, featuring both her work and the work of artist Neil Bender, the flyer for which says Jen uses multi-layered historical references and gendered storytelling to challenge static or reverential perceptions of feminism and encourages ongoing discussions about gender, intersectionality, and identity politics. She's gracious enough to take time out of her preparing for that show, which opens in about two hours to do this podcast. So let's get right to it. Hey there, Jen. How's it going? Oh, just fine. Thank ready you for the show. Thank you so much for doing this. No problem. So uh, music and performing are integral to your art. Did that start early in your career or aspirations as an artist or did that come later? Like what's the What's the root of your art? Is it drawing first and then performance or is it performance and then drawing? Um, drawing first and then performance. But the performance comes from the drawings. So it's kind of a natural progression and directly related. And then I've always been really, really interested in music even as a child as it relates to art. So they've never really been separate for me. Where did you get started uh, down your path as an artist? Uh, young? Is, is, is it – Right from the get-go or did you sort yes. of find it in high school or where did that come from? All, all, always. Um, my mother was an artist so in our family she was kind of the number one artist but I always did art since I can remember. I can't remember a time when I discovered it. It was just always there. Hmm. Did you study art through high school and then you know, in college you obviously did. Were you like taking all the art classes you could when you were a kid? I'm from South Carolina. <laughs> they don't have any art classes. It's it's really difficult. They don't really put enough emphasis on art in school. I, I was lucky. I had a really great teacher and she recognized certain students that had a, a greater interest in art and so she helped me along. And so for that, I'm really grateful. And then my mother also, um, you know, she, she bought me supplies. She taught me a lot of things about art and that kind of got me prepared for – when I went to university and studied art full time. What kind of artist was your mom or is your mom? 
She is a, like a realistic uh, person that draws like animals very realistically and then she also did glass. She um, she still does art. She did jewelry making and weaving and, and she still does it at home. She's She's always done it and we actually went to college together. Oh, really? So we were in the art department together and my sister simultaneously was in the business department. So all three of us were going to college at the same time at the same at the same college. But we had kind of separate classes and my mother was that's doing like more. A, that's yeah. like a sitcom or something. It's, yeah, it really wasn't that funny but um, it should have been maybe. We hardly ever overlap but um, it's funny because we all still do what we studied in college, which is not always the case. Yeah, but yeah. my sister's in business. She works um, in banking, financial services and – and yeah, my mother's retired, but she still does a lot of uh, art-related projects. Hmm. Um, I have never really been a visual artist. I'm a photographer and do some digital stuff, but I've never been like a drawer. And my daughter is 13 now, and she has sketchbooks everywhere, and she has all these different markers, and she's really come a long way. And it makes me so proud to watch that happen because that's not didn't get it from me. And your drawings, by the way, do you, do you remember the gnome book that came out <laughs> back in the 70s? I I do remember that book, That's and I also there were these your, figures. Yeah, um, yeah, the artwork in that is what your your work reminded me of. I sort would of, like and, to not say that. Okay. <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, when I, I was, I a haven't kid, looked at the gnome book recently, so maybe it's just something about the vibe. <laughs> um, no, I mean, my work is. There is an element of fantasy, but for me, it's very, um, in a weird way, apocalyptic, mm-hmm. and. Hopefully a little harder edge than that. I think those are a bit, um, you know, they're a little twee, as we say. Um, but I mean, I was influenced. Like as a kid, I I would say more less than gnomes, but I definitely loved the Hobbit drawings. They oh, had an okay. animation yeah, of yeah. the Hobbit when I was a kid, and um, and we had a book of of those. Detailed. I had that same book. Yeah, yeah it was like um, I think they were basically stills or. Um, you know, they were from the cartoon right, right. And, or the animation and they were great. And so I really like that. But my influences are um, – as a kid are a lot different than that. Um, I would say, you know, there are certain fairy tale drawings I was really interested in. And again, since my work deals with women, it's much more women-based, like looking at drawings of women, I would say. Always, even when I was a kid, always. Hmm. Um, so it's never not been that. So what was the musical background of your childhood? The Beatles, that's our family's religion, basically. Hmm. Um, and every Beatles song ever, I think I'd, I'd already heard by the time I was 10. Uh, the Beach Boys, ABBA. I mean, I can tell you exactly the albums in my house. <laughs> ABBA, um, Hooked on Classics, which is a big do you remember Hooked on Classics? It's like electronic um, it's, classical yeah, music. It's deep in there. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous, but it's kind of wonderful at the same time. It's really kitsch. Um, so it's like rock and roll classical music, sort of. When you leave this booth and go check <laughs> it out on YouTube, it's just over the day. It's like disco. It's basically disco classic music Okay, what okay. it was. Um, so things like that, but primarily the Beatles always. Hmm. Um, do you remember the first music that you owned? Yes. This – I don't know if you're ready for this, but this ties in with my first selection actually. OK. Because this was the first record I owned is my selection. OK. Well, um, 
hold on that thought. Okay, we'll, I will hold that thought. We, we will pivot <laughs> we back, can track to that. back to and, that. Yeah, in just in just a minute. So, um, did you play music? Did anybody in your family play music? Was there being music performed around you as a kid? No, I think it's really it's really more about pop culture. And then, of course, you know, when you're a kid, you're kind of just um, you have to listen to what your parents listen to. And for instance, my parents listened to the music I just mentioned, but then they also listened to AM radio. So we had a lot of AM radio, and it took me a long time to realize I could change the station to <laughs> FM. I think there are a lot of kids like that. And then suddenly they're like, well, I want to listen to this, like my music on an FM station. And your parents are like, but no, like we listen to our music on this AM station. Yeah. And I think when I finally worked up the nerve to switch it, it was, a, it was actually a really big deal. Because then you're listening to your music for, from your time period. Right, right. So that was um, – but no one really played music. Um, my sister played the clarinet badly. Sorry. Sorry, Bridget. Um, but other than that, it wasn't, it wasn't about that. It was that these records were on your parents' shelf. They appeared somehow magically and you ended up listening to them. Mm-hmm. And then that's it until you began your own musical education with your own music. Um, what was your music that you first like latched onto as a young person that maybe wasn't fed to you by your parents? Well, I've always liked story songs. So any song that tells a little story, I really – I think I really paid attention to that and mm. actually ties into my work later. You know, there's like this narrative and even something like Kenny Rogers, the Gambler, that song. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, tells a pretty sitting, good story. It tells the story. <laughs> and, and, you know, just sitting by the um, eight-track cassette player that my parents had um, and listening to this story, I just thought it was just the greatest thing. Hmm. Do you remember a, an early time when move, music moved you? Um, yeah. I mean, again, I, I really think the Beatles will always be – be that for me. I mean, I really embrace them. I mean, everybody embraces them, right? But, um, you know, I think that's the that's the first – when I was little, like, to be able to have access to, like, a sophisticated songs and a range of sophisticated songs because we were listening to all of their songs. We got to hear, like, their lesser-known works also. Right, so that, right. that – um, I think that kind of laid the groundwork for like enjoying songs later. Hmm. Um, is music part of your um, artistic process when you're doing visual art? Are you listening to music? Does it somehow – do you channel it in some way or something like that? Definitely because doing the performance, it came out of this idea that the drawings that I was making kind of had a soundtrack. So I always – I've always thought that when I'm working on the paintings and then that's why it was kind of this natural progression that it – went into performance because for me, it's like you were looking at the painting, but there's something missing, like the musical element was missing. Hmm. So I'm always listening to music, thinking about music, thinking about lyrics when I'm making the paintings. And then that informs maybe when I take um, the paintings into the performance, Hmm. when I start that process. Do you consciously link what kinds of songs or music you're listening to, to what kind of work you're doing? I do. I mean, I try to. I tr- I really think about really powerful songs a lot of times. Like I did a project um, about Black Sabbath, and I really like Black Sabbath, and so I'm often thinking of the way they create kind of visuals with their music and lyrics, mm-hmm. and I'm in a way doing the same thing. Hmm. Like, I don't think it's 
for me, it's not that much separate, or I'm really inspired by that to create my artwork, hmm. how they create that. Interesting. All right. Well, let's move to your first song. Jump back to where we were right. three and a half minutes ago. Okay. <laughs> what do you got? Me and Little Andy by Dolly Parton. My first – when you were saying, you know, like the first song that affected you in some way or influenced you or a song that you had ownership over, I would say that song is that for me. And it is a ridiculous and wonderful, painful song. And do you want to explain more now or do you want to listen to it first? Um, <laughs> I will explain a little bit um, before you hear it. So my second grade teacher was obsessed with Dolly Parton and um, she – and my, my family didn't listen to country. But anyway, so she had this big blonde bouffant Dolly Parton hair and she wore um, – Oh, so she was – Oh, she was decked she, out like she thought she was Dolly Parton. She was and, cosplaying um, she, Dolly Parton. She was – she had like the polyester pantsuit and the blousy white blouse underneath it. And so – and she was wonderful. Like as a second grader, you're like, oh my god, my teacher is so pretty with this big hair. And anyway, and she was very sweet. So one day we had a little downtime in class. She brought in a little record player and she brought out this 45 and we all gathered around. It's like like it happened yesterday. We all gathered around and she put on this record and the record was me and little Andy and – I'd never experienced anything like this, um, and all the kids were just completely um, enraptured by this song. And then my teacher became so overcome with emotion during the song, she started crying. <laughs> and, and somewhere from some distant area, somebody came and basically had to take her away because she was just couldn't continue in the class. And so she went to like the teacher's lounge to recover. And so then she eventually had like, came back. She was like, like she had like a mini breakdown, <laughs> mini Dolly Parton related breakdown. While dressed as Dolly graders. Parton in front of second graders. <laughs> well, when you hear the song, you'll <laughs> hopefully will understand why, because all of us were really highly affected as well by this song, and it's a story song, so that gives you a little bit of a clue. But um, I feel like when that happened, it was so powerful, like the way that you could affect an audience by playing or performing music, I think that really triggered something in me that I saved for later and huh. it has to do with my practice and what I do. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, I have never heard this song that I'm aware of, so I'm about to hear it now. Um, and let's imagine your second grade teacher in, in South Carolina. <laughs> yes. What was her name? Do you remember? Miss Whitesides. Miss Whitesides. Let's do this. If you're for out this. there, Miss Whitesides. Let's do it. <laughs> this is for you. <clears throat> this is me and little Andy from uh, Dolly Parton's 1977 album, uh, Here You Come Again. Ain't you got no gingerbread? Ain't you got no cake? So, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God! It still gives me chills. I just that wanted to know. That is so great. Well, Dolly Parton says that's the most pitiful song she ever wrote, and she is absolutely correct. And I just want you to know that I was seven, and in the story, in the song rather, the kid is seven. Uh-huh. So my now it's kind of all coming together. So my teacher was basically playing this record about a kid that dies with her dog, yeah. who is the same age as I am. No wonder she started crying. I mean, and now it makes complete sense. And I've only just realized it now. I thought it was her worship of Dolly Parton. But really what I think it was is watching us all sit around the record player the same age as this kid that croaks in the song. (laughs) And, and, you know, you you wonder what she else, you know, what other – 
whatever she had going. I don't. What would make you do that? I mean, now they would kick you out of school, I think, for doing something well, like that. I, that's got to be one of my favorite songs and stories <laughs> that we've done yet because it's just so random. It, I had oh. a high school teacher who, who – no, it was a middle school teacher who must have been a Vietnam vet. It was the 80s and he was about that age and he came in at the end of the year with a – army thing on and he played Creedence Clearwater Revival for us on the cello. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the, that's what this reminded me of. I don't know why that doesn't really it, make it's sense. It's the same but. thing. It's almost again, it's almost performative. It's it's realizing how music can convey this message that's Absolutely. super powerful and even though even if you don't make the music this ties in with what I do. You know, you're taking the music, mm-hmm. you're kind of um digesting it in some way and picking out the parts that are very meaningful to you and trying to convey them, like reconvey them to Mm -hmm. an audience because you feel so excited by it. And I feel like this song is just a complete trigger for my entire (laughs) performance career. It's your catalyst. It's my catalyst because all of us were affected. I went – okay, and this goes back to a previous question you had about owning music my like first. I went home and I demanded that we buy this record and – um. In my family, you didn't you didn't really ask for a lot. I mean, you just didn't. Right. But I was like, if I don't have this record, I am going to die, literally, like the girl in the song. And my mother did buy it for me. I mean, it couldn't have caught what, – what's a 45 in the 70s, yeah. 50 cents yeah, or whatever. Exactly. But I was like – it was the first time I was like, I must own this. And the thing is that that song is such like a, a, a palette. You could have told a story that would have made that song heart wrenching to listen to. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> it's got a little bit of everything because yeah. when I hear it, I'm still really affected by it. But yet I want to also scream with laughter at the same because it's just. I mean, I'm like, you killed both of them off. Like, well, yeah. How? I mean, because you could have set that up in a way that I would have been tearing up, and instead <laughs> I was just trying to imagine it anyway. No, um, and Dolly Parton also knows that what she wrote, and then her daddy's drunk. I mean, and I play it for my son. My son's. Um, I started playing it for my son when he was probably eight. Mm-hmm. He hates that song with a passion. <laughs> Well, I'm going to have my daughter <laughs> learn it on the ukulele. Totally. Um, Spread wh- the word. <laughs> um, did you make mixtapes? You're probably the right era for that, right? I did, but I didn't really make them for anyone but myself. Um, so I spent a lot of time crouched down next to my father's stereo and with, and also with like a, you know, um, what do you call it, a tape recorder. Mm-hmm. Um making these tapes. But mostly they were for me. Like now that I look back on it, it makes a lot of sense for again my my career our career so i was and i was also like singing to myself like singing the lyrics recording it rewinding it listening so i don't remember ever making anything for someone else mm. just my just myself did you um adorn your mixtapes with art and drawings like some people did i had some friends who had as just as much fun making little covers and writing the words to you know not not really. Hmm. I think it was much more a practical endeavor. Like I uh, I was a little bit embarrassed by what I was doing, I think. Or I didn't want any I, – I wasn't embarrassed myself. I didn't want anybody to find out what I was doing. Right. And so I didn't adorn them partly because they were just very practical for me. Gotcha. It's more about the action of like – Learning the Cheers theme song and singing it to myself. Yeah, I yeah. Doing that. Can you sing us a little? No. Good Lord, no. But everything. <laughs> just, I'm like, why that? But I think it's just, um, I don't know. It's like experimentation for me mostly. Hmm. Do you remember any of the songs that would have been on those mixtapes? 
I don't. Um, I really don't. I think it was a lot of TV theme songs that I whispered into a tape recorder. <laughs> and um, God, if only I had. Them, I was going to say, mother. gosh, I'm like that, some creepy kid. They might be in a box if somewhere. In the world today. Um, yeah, something. <laughs> Like Dolly Parton. I should have to get away. Uh, yes, things like that. I think I was um, I was kind of a creepy kid. Like, yeah, a little, little, little strange. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, we embrace strange here. Um, oh. wh- when was the last time you bought music that had a physical form? Oh, my God. I just bought some music because, okay. um, I, because of the exhibition that we're doing here um, – uh, I bought a couple of records, and my co-conspirator Neil um, in the exhibition Blind Date he bought some records on Amazon. And the funny thing about it is, we were shocked at how expensive they were. So we bought, and this ties into like my history. It's not like I don't listen to new music, folks. I, this, but this is the old stuff. So I bought um, a B52s record that I was obsessed with when I was a kid, and uh, I bought Donna Summer, which we'll talk about. <laughs> And then I bought uh, – what was the other one I bought? Oh, Blondie. And so um, that was my recent purchase. But I was like – I was surprised by the prices of albums. And my husband's a musician and he's basically a musician slash DJ. So he has records coming into our house constantly. But so that's you, a whole nother – So you have you know. like you, – you are playing music – the, like records and stuff around the yeah. house and that sort of thing. Totally. Like we have a Technics turntable and we, we we have a huge record collection. Half of it's in storage. Some of it's in our house. But we have a ton of records. What about uh, Pandora or Amazon Echo or, you know, do you have digital streaming coming in too? You know, honestly, I like to just listen to music on YouTube. That's mm-hmm. just the way I do it. And in a way, um, like I'll look for somebody that has put together kind of a YouTube playlist or I'll right. just do it myself, almost like I'm DJing from YouTube. And I've used the other services. For some reason, I just always go back to YouTube. I just, just enjoy that just, format. Yeah. I, I, you're not the first person who said that. It's weird. It's a video sharing site, but it's like most people, a lot of people just use it for the music. You know. I think that some of the other streaming they feel like they're bossing you around or they're trying to make you do some things they want you to do. Right. Then that's why I kind of kicked that aside and started doing YouTube hmm. because it's just this box of stuff and you just pull out of it what you feel like pulling out and of it. And it's all there. It, that's pretty much all you know, there. Yeah. Much. And the other services, you're like, oh, so you don't have that. Right. But you got that, but not the thing I – anyway, you know how it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, live music. Um, what's you have a pinnacle live music experience oh that you can point to? I do. I saw Daft Punk in Brazil mm. Mm. and it was part of this festival. So I saw like the Beastie Boys, Daft Punk and um, just a ton of other like smaller electronic acts and it was incredible. Daft Punk's my definitely my favorite concert partly because their, their performance is just so crafted – and so tight, and the visuals are incredible. It's just really super energetic. And um, I listen to a lot more electronic music now because my husband's an electronic musician. So he plays a laptop computer. And so I'm I'm almost – for me to hear like a live band is more unusual these days for me, Hmm. even though, of course, I grew up listening to like indie music and regular bands but um what were you doing in brazil did you go there to see the bands or did you <laughs> well my husband had a gig and it it was part of this festival oh, and so okay. he was um asked to play his music and also dj on this huge stage that was up in the air and it was hilarious it had like his name going around it and like digital text 
And Patti Smith was there. I can't think of everybody. Daft Punk, Patti Smith, the BC Boys, a bunch of other people. We were all staying at this hotel together. Wow. Rock and roll lifestyle. It was, totally. And we were hoping nobody would find out that we were not at the level of those other right, performers. Right. And it was very funny because um, – while my husband was DJing, somebody was like, you know, ne- next up, the Beastie Boys. It's like everybody ran away, including me. I was like, bye. <laughs> so we all ran over. He was like on a, a side stage or he one was of those like on this. It was almost like this um, mountain where he was on the top of this oh, wow. DJ mountain. And um, so it was hilarious. And then again, and we really wanted to see Daft Punk. So that's what we were doing in Brazil. We traveled a lot. Like when my husband was playing music, we traveled all over. Not I wouldn't say all. Well, kind of all over the world. Here and there, a lot of European dates. I was going to say, the when's the farthest? What's the farthest you've traveled for music? But perhaps Brazil is it? No, I, I mean I think Moscow, maybe. Well, I guess maybe Brazil. We've been, we've been to Japan. Um, maybe Japan's the farthest away. Mm. Cool. Maybe. I'd have to look at my map to figure that one out. But yeah, just all over the place. And then also, you know, when you're an artist, you're asked to go different places. So both of us have traveled quite a bit. You know, on what we do. Our jobs. Cool. Um, quote, quote, jobs. <laughs> quote, quote, hey, well, it sounds like you're making something work. <laughs> right, somehow. <laughs> um, okay, song number two. Oh, okay. Okay, so um, Bad Girls by Donna Summer. And to give this a little backstory also, again, this relates heavily to what I do now. I've always been interested in like really powerful women, women who are performing. Um, Donna Summer was a huge influence on me as a kid. And the funny thing about it is we would get to get – like my friends and I would get together and have dance contests with each other and actually turn this into a performance recently where women are competing with each other, pre-adolescent girls. And um, and we're trying to like be the best we can and it's very energized and you know we're trying to beat each other but in like a positive sense. Mm-hmm. But then when I think about – so this song, Bad Girls, was like a big song that we danced to all the time, although it is also about prostitution slash sex workers, <laughs> which – once again, it's like, who gave us this record? And if you go back and look at it, it's all like scantily clad. Like the album cover? The album cover is literally girls on a street corner plying their trade. And here we are dancing to it, I'd say around 11, maybe 10, putting on costumes. and But, I mean, I also find this song very empowering. I mean, I love it. It's just totally energizing. Did you were you aware of what it was getting at when you were eleven or ten dancing to it? Yes, but the song and the artwork was they were kind of two separate things. Like I remember, I mean, because I'm very visual, I looked at the album cover a lot and the inner sleeve and everything, and so I kind of knew what was happening. <laughs> but the song, I think, it just resonated with me, like this idea of bad girls. And then during the song, it also says sad girls. So I do think she is actually referring to the cover. But anyway, you know how it is when you're a kid. It's just all, you're like, ooh, this song, it's amazing. All right, well, let's hear it. This is uh, Bad Girls by Donna Summer from her 1979 album of the same name. Yeah, it's pretty clear right there at the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) I think the whole song, I'm like, I, I mean, I've heard it out loud, of course, since being a kid, but... You know, hearing it with the headphones, I'm like, yeah, it's pretty clear. Um, <laughs> but but I can see how it is infectious. I mean, talk about pure '70s, boy. That's yeah, it. So like disco, massive disco hit, and I don't know. I I don't know if Georgia Marauder did that album. I'd have to figure that out. But um, 
you know, I like the way it's structured, the song's structured as well. And it was just a great dance hit for some – I think, year old girls. and I think I need more whistles in my music. Right, and people saying toot toot, oh <laughs> yeah, that always helps life. Um, but I do again um, in my work. I actually sometimes I'll take songs that I think are slightly negative, especially as it re- in regards to women, and I like to flip them mm. over and kind of put them put the words in a voice of someone else who kind of owns it mm-hmm. a little bit. And I haven't ever done that with this song, but. Can you give an example of that? Well, that's the next song. Okay. (laughs) Explain more on the next song. We'll we'll get back to that one too. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, do you you don't make the music that are part of your performances, right? You're not like a songwriter, or do you sometimes? No, I usually take a song that you would know. Mm -hmm. Um, Each performance has a song that that is familiar, and I. I get together with my husband and we work on the music together. So we add or we chop it up. Um, We kind of remix it a little bit. And so that allows me to put emphasis on certain parts of the song and take out other parts. Hmm. So it gives me more of a voice in conveying um, these songs. But – and it's funny because my husband's always very – you know, he tells people he doesn't make the music even though he's a musician. Mm -hmm. It's more that I harass him into doing exactly what I want from the song. He is simply an instrument. He is a <laughs> software guy who has all the programs and then, you know, I I I love working with him partly because I can speak to him very um very truthfully mm-hmm. and tell him what I want. There's really no hemming and hawing. So he I'm very grateful though because he helps me like facilitate the pieces through these through this music. Do you ever consider <clears throat> The you know visual artist, you put your work on a wall, somebody looks at it, maybe they remember it, maybe they don't. But when you start adding music, because of the way music binds to memories like what we're exploring here, exactly. it may you – know, you, your, your work sticks with people in a different way than simply a drawing or a painting might. Well, that's part of something I think about a lot because I was so a part of the music world, especially when I lived in Berlin because – our lifestyle was really about going to shows all the time, staying up really late, <laughs> um, and hearing a constant stream of new music from other artists. And I felt like one foot in the art world, one foot in the music world. And the art world, to me, it is very intellectual. And then I would be in the music world, and it's just so much fun. There's just so much energy and mm-hmm. excitement and physicality to it, which I really missed in the art world. So I think part of that was like, how do I blend these two things together? And that's really what my artwork is all about. But it is about that memory, too. That's a very good point to bring up because the the feelings that these songs give you, they're so powerful. Mm-hmm. And art, is, art can't be like that. It's just not in the same way. So I am definitely trying to meld that together. I am um, uh... – Saw a singer, singer songwriter who I'm a big fan of named Dan Byrne. He was at the Sanibel Island Writers Conference four or five years ago, and he got up on stage and played some songs. And he was talking about how he felt like it was a little unfair because all the other people who were there were just all they did was write. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he, you know, well, well, <laughs> well, you know, and and, and yeah. he was being you know a gl- little bit glib about it, but you know, it's there's a resonance to that. You know, yeah. you, you're you're going to remember. Just that's something about the music that does that. Yeah, to hit that, you know, the first note and and the expectations you have for when you know someone's going to play. You know, you're very expectant. You're you're like lean forward and 
But then again, there's a lot of disappointment sometimes in certain people playing music where you wish you'd just turn around and walk out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, there's something about instruments and music. and Karaoke? Yeah, totally. I love karaoke. I pretend that I don't. My husband, if he were here, I, I'm the, that person that pretends that they don't want to do it. Then I get completely into it and I won't let anybody have the mic. And then I get really bossy. You know, I'm like, well, you're not singing that right if we're doing a duet. So you're like the producer. <clears throat> you turn into the you, – you know what you should do. You should run a karaoke night. <laughs> oh, my God. If I did, you would hate to come. I would be so furious at everyone. But I've done karaoke at a lot of different funny places too. And we actually had um, – we had a strip club in Atlanta and they had karaoke nights. And that was pretty much wow. the best location. Um, it's called the Claremont Lounge. And anyone who's – been to Atlanta or lived in Atlanta knows this club very well. It's a, just a trashy, wonderful little place and you can do karaoke and it's very relaxed. What's your go-to song if you only get to do one or do you always have to do more than one once you get started? Um, I love the song My Sharona. Ah. But the funny thing is it has this part in the middle where it's basically just drumming. So what do you call that? There's that section it's like the breakdown or it's something. The, well, I know. We call it the breakdown now, but it's not. It's Anyway, the point is there's nothing to do during it. So if you do sing My Sharona, you have to be prepared to stand around looking like kind of a dope holding a microphone. So you got to get your moves together. you know. But that's a big pause in that song. But I love that song. So much fun. Um, uh, well, I was going to ask if you have any TV themes committed to memory, but you clearly have at least one. No. Um, <laughs> Any others besides Cheers? <laughs> I don't even like Cheers that much. I have no idea. I don't know. Probably I know Gilligan's Island. And uh, well, I was really into TV as a kid. I mean, um, I did a lot of drawing in front of the television. Hmm. So for me, when I was a kid, I you know I wasn't doing my schoolwork first of all, so that should tell you something. But you know, I would be drawing or reading and watching TV all at the same time. Um, so even the music for shows. As a kid, I remember and I would like listen to very consciously, you know, how the music in a sitcom would drive the action. Mm -hmm. I realized very early on as a kid and then I would like listen for it. Hmm. Um, do you have any modern mainstream bands that uh, you're a fan of? Some people are like, I cut it off at 1996. Right. I'm like, oh, back in the old days. No, actually, um, okay, so this year we listened to a lot of Thundercat. That's really fun. He's great. And then Daft Punk, like I said, I love. Um, I, wor I had a project this year with an incredible singer. Her name's um, Sarah Jaffe, and she's out of Texas, but she's very well known, and she's just amazing. I can barely listen to her without crying. Hmm. And um, I love Peaches. I love Sleigh Bells. Um, and then I listen to Nina Simone. Like I still like really powerful female singers. Like that's kind of my go-to. And then this is an ex incredible time to mention this singer that I love that hardly anyone knows. And her name's Dory Previn. And she has since passed away. But her songs are intense hmm. and um, and incredible. And they're super personal. And so I'm I'm actually beginning to work on a project about her. Um, but she was married to Andre Previn, and she did all the music for Valley of the Dolls, the movie. Mm -hmm. And then she wrote her own personalized songs hmm. after she got out of a sanitarium. Hmm. Dory that's a, Previn. Dory Previn. That's a whole other story. But you can find her music on YouTube, and it, I, it's well worth it. Hmm. I'll have to check it out. Um, do you have a favorite band? A favorite band? I... 
God, if I had a choice. Um, you do have a choice. I, do, I know. But <laughs> <laughs> um, you know I'm going to go home and be like, why didn't I say so-and-so? Um, you know, I do love Blondie a lot and go back to that a lot. Um, so I listen to that. But, I mean, I hate to harp on the Beatles, but my God, you know, they're really good. I don't know if you're aware of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, – you know, that's always there somewhere. Is Beatles maybe your most listened to band probably over the years? Probably, but I mean, I'm not even sure if I can say at this point, um, it's not like I get excited when I hear them. It's just part of, almost right. part of who I am. I feel like I'm talking about the Beatles way too much during this interview. No, that's okay. <laughs> I mean, they, the, the, if we if we were able to feed all of these shows into a database, I'm sure that word would probably be the one that's mentioned the most. I mean, they're part of the fabric of... Our modern existence. Yeah, it's like history instead of – it's hard to be like, yeah, my favorite band's the Beatles. It just sounds ludicrous. You're like, right. yeah, well, join the group yeah, standing exactly. over there yeah, of millions. One third but... of other people on this planet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, and I – um, yeah, let's leave it at the Beatles. Okay. Um, all right. Now we're going to move on to your third song. So what was the question I asked you that you said alluded to the third song? All right, right. Songs that I like to take and kind of flip yeah, yeah, around yeah, 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 yeah. and manipulate. I mean I am manipulating all the songs that I use in my performances. Um, and with the song Annihilate by Black Flag, I love Black Flag and I've loved them since I was a kid. And I find a lot of humor in their lyrics intentionally or unintentionally. I'm not sure if they – yeah, I think they think that. But – Anyway, so the song Annihilate is a very powerful song. And then when I got older, I realized it was kind of shaming a woman for annihilating the weak, like basically tearing up the weak with total bad behavior and then feeling guilty about it at the end. Like, you know, you should look back on what you did. Like, aren't you ashamed? And so I did a project where I took that song and put it in the mouth of a woman who's a very powerful singer and dancer. And so instead of feeling kind of any guilt about it, she's saying like, yeah, I did that and I, you know, I don't feel guilty and I did it. I annihilated the weak. Um, hmm. So that's a little bit of something that I do um, with certain songs like that. But I, I love that song as a kid. It just took me a while to figure out what they were actually saying in the song about a woman. So that was more, more of something I discovered later. Hmm. All right. Well, let's hear it. This is, um, is it called Annihilate This it's, Week? I think it's called Annihilate, actually. Okay. Um, well, Sorry. That's, well, yeah, it's okay. It's, uh, it's from Black Flag's 1987 EP of that same name. What was the exhibit for? When was that exhibit? Or where um, was that exhibit two to? Two performances. Um, oh, performance. Mm-hmm, um, in Berlin. And so I'm able to work with this fantastic singer-dancer there. And so she's – while she's singing this, there's a chorus that yells annihilate like in the song. And then she's like just dancing and spinning around the room, turning flips. She spit on some people one time. Um, so it's ext- like very punkish. She's yeah, yeah. wearing like a leotard and – black underpants like that's it and she so it's just really dynamic did i see video of that on your website yeah, probably, <laughs> probably so um and so yeah I, I mean again a lot of the music i heard as a kid comes back to me in my artwork and performances i mean it's like a resource i draw on all the time and asking myself how i felt about it then how i feel about it now like what it's telling me maybe how it influenced me in my life or maybe even changed me in some way Hmm. You know, I I I am um, 
I'm familiar with uh, Henry Rollins. Mm-hmm. I, I appreciate him. I like his style, but mm-hmm. I've never really listened to his music before until then. So it sounds exactly like what I would have imagined. Yeah, it it's like. funny because with Henry Rollins, like I, I saw him live also, and that's fine. But um, Black Flag always to me seems like well, first of all, I decided that I was some kind of Southern Californian punk kid in when I was in high school. It's kind of like you had to pick. At a certain point, you have to pick like who you're going to be, like your yeah. musical identity. And since my best friend had already taken the Smiths, I decided that I would go into this other punk zone. And I really never really liked it. I mean I, I love certain bands, but I really couldn't embrace it fully. Um, so that was just – it's just a funny thing that's always stuck with me that I had to – I'm like, OK, well, that identity is not being used right now. So um, yeah, I'll take <laughs> that one. And I think I feel like Black Flag is a little bit artier. Um, the The – the guitarist Greg Ginn is uh, the brother of like a very well-known artist, and so anyway. But I love Black Flag; they're really funny. They're funny to me. Um, when you do your, when where do you find people to you know dress up and do all that stuff? I mean, is that just in, in your network of artists and things like that? It is in my network, which is fantastic. I have a really great network of performers, and especially in Berlin, people's fle- schedules are really flexible. Um, so I, I could just write like a bunch of awesome women and then I would say like, do you have any friends that also want to participate? And they would. I mean, I try to, I try to either pay a small amount or give, give a present or something. Like I don't like to try to just have free labor. It's really important that we have some kind of, um, exchange with each other. Yeah, that's. And so, um, but sometimes people just, if they know me, they'll just do it. If they know that my, whatever my budget's sliding around. Um, but I usually pay them in art if that's the case. Um, but I just have this great network and all of the women I work with are what I would call, <clears throat> you know, very talented women, but they're also very, you know, normal looking, like there's just a wide range. And then we put on these costumes and we put our hair up and like put some makeup on sometimes. But I've had performances where a woman was like 80, the oldest and the youngest 12, everybody in between or students. And so it's a, it's a bit theatrical. You know, they, they do this kind of – they put on these clothes and they're like very tough. But if you knew them, you know, in the day-to-day, um, they're all incredible. But they're, you know, just like you and me. Yeah, yeah. They don't come across that way though in your – No, not at all. And so they get really excited. I'm like, you know, do you want to do this? Yeah, they get to, yeah, they get to act out kind of. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I try to explain beforehand like what we're doing and everybody's free to say yes or no. Um but it's it's a lot of fun and it is there's a lot of energy like when you get a lot of women together mm-hmm. and they're all doing this thing and it, there's music and lights and people get really excited. So uh, you, your name and Neil's name came up when I did the John Lashuto episode. So remind me how music fits into your exhibit. You guys each pick some songs that's playing in the back. Mm-hmm. Explain that for, um, for us. Well, we John invited us to make our own kind of mixtape playlist. So that's a lot of fun. And so we did that, and we have some overlaps in our taste. Like you know, we um, Neil likes REM, and I grew up listening to REM. Also, like when I was the indie kid, mm-hmm. and um, you know, we both like Peaches. And anyway, so we have some overlaps, and um, and then I think music is important to both of us in what we do. Even though Neil's not doing performance, I don't think music is any less important to him. Um, and then we're lucky enough to have this incredible jazz combo that's coming to play some of the songs that we picked from our playlist, which is amazing. And so basically Neil and I are just equally excited by that. Um, 
And we talked a lot, like, on and off, Neil and I talk about music a lot, like what we like, sh- concerts we've seen in the past, and, you know, how our tastes have changed or not changed. And so I don't know. I think I think John was just able to find – and John also, like, three people, John, myself, and Neil, that are still very much influenced by music. And I think – it didn't end for us. Like we're we're joking around, like saying, "Oh, it ends in like 90, 1995. You know, but yeah. it's, for us, it's not. It's a continued progression of something that influences what we do in our lives. Um, um, I had a question and I forgot what it was. I get to cut this part out. Is it? What's my least favorite song? We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. We're almost done, but uh, okay. no, no. Um, I don't want to oh, rush. No, I know. I know what. It, uh, had had you and Neil met prior to showing up here, like in person, or had you just like communicated via email, or or how how did the collaboration fuse? Yeah, John saw my work in Berlin, and then he knew Neil Neil's work, and he saw Neil's work um, during Art Basel in Miami. And then he got us together and we came here for an initial meeting. Okay. So we talked a little bit. We didn't know each other. And so this is only our second time we've been here um, together. But it's like old home week now. You know, it's like all of us, we bonded in the creation of the exhibition. So it's all good. And it opens in an hour and 24 minutes. So are you, um, I mean, it's all ready to go and everything? It's ready. And it's funny because I I don't have to do the heavy lifting of the performance. The jazz combo does. So that's why I'm enjoying it so much. I'm like, I can't wait to hear them. And I don't have to, like, gather a group of 40 Amazon women. Right. I have to, like, make sure everybody's costumes are on. And then, yeah, because, I mean, doing the performance is a lot. You know, it's like the lights, the sound, the, you know, playback, the participants. And anyway, you so have I don't to, have to do that. I just enjoy. You have to be an artist and a stage manager. It's true. And I never did stage management. But I, I know a lot of people who did. So I try to learn from everyone and, and just, you know. Find out as I go along. Right. Um, are there any songs that you will always turn off if they come on the radio? That kind of is uh, linking to your oh d- songs that you hate, I guess. I cannot tell you. I hate the song Kokomo with a passion. <laughs> and I, I have a reason. First of all, I love Brian Wilson. And I love – there are certain Beach Boy songs, Brian Wilson related, that – that are just so wonderful for me, and it's also in that kind of memory box, like in my room. Um, there's a couple of other ones, but when I worked, one of my first jobs, I worked in a in a store where they played a loop of music over and over again, and that's embedded in my brain. And Kokomo, I just despise that song. It's so would, cheap. Would and that have cheesy. been like like late '80s, early '90s? Yeah, I think it's like, early '90s. It came out. It was the cocktail soundtrack yes. that, that was so big on Tom Cruise mixing some drinks. Right, and I feel like. <laughs> I guess it's like the ultimate sellout song also, like knowing that the Beach Boys had this depth and then Kokomo is just like total piece of trash and it's like, ugh, Mike Love. Um, and al- I hate Mike Love too. <laughs> uh, album you would pick if you uh, only had one to listen to oh, no. from, from now until the end of the time and it can't be a Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> it won't be. I won't I – won't, um, Oh, man, I should have written that one down. Um, I love – and I don't know if – did Neil mention Midnight Vultures? You can cut all this out if you want no, to. No, we won't cut this out. He did. We both love Midnight Vultures and I would I would listen to that. Um, His third song was from that. Yeah. I mean I, I listen to that all the time. It's so exuberant and again like very arty and funny and stupid and wonderful. So I never really get tired of that record. Um, 
And there's a couple of Tribe Called Quest records mm-hmm. I listen to a lot. And it's funny. I read this thing about how, like, that's our oldies now, which was terrifying, of course, and it's true. Um, and I listen to – there isn't maybe an album, but I did want to say that I listen to a lot of Loretta Lynn. Mm. So I'd say, like, Loretta Lynn's greatest hits – I listen to a lot. And again, her songs are the also these story songs and they're very empowering and they're they're really radical. Like the song The Pill, totally crazy that she produced that song or put that song out. So I'd say I listen to a lot. Yeah. Greatest hits, Loretta, all the way. All right. Well that's all the time we've got. Do you have any final thoughts? It goes no, by I so got fast. in Kokomo, that was good. <laughs> um no, I just I just had a great time thinking and talking about this because it's something I I do all the time. Like I'm really so heavily invested in music, but it's not often you get to talk about, especially your influences, um, in great detail. So it's great. And shout out to the gallery. It's been like a great experience um, here on campus. Cool. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah. Thank you. We make this podcast in the WGCU studios on the FGCU campus in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Calligan is our online content producer. Chris Duffus is our executive producer. Our theme song was created by Dave, Dave, Dave Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. For this week's Parting Tune, I'm going back to my early childhood in Raytown, Missouri at my grandparents' house, my mom's folks. Now, this is an early memory, so the specifics may be a bit wonky, but the song and album, it's on our reel, and we had it, and we listened to it on a portable record player somewhere. I feel like I can recall at least one instance in the back bedroom of my grandma and grandma Roland's house. We must have listened to it elsewhere because its raw, unbridled, ridiculous grooviness is emblazoned on my, like, six- or seven-year-old mind. It was brought to mind by Jen Ray's memory of the Hooked on Classics albums that featured 70s rock, funk, disco treatments of classical music classics. This, though, is the 1978 album called Spaced Out Disco by what billed themselves as the Galactic Force Band. It features, quote, disco themes from Star Wars, 2001, Star Trek, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, end quote. For today's parting tune, I'm pulling out what was easily my favorite at the time because of my love for Star Wars, which had just come out. Here it is, the main title from Star Wars. Hold on to your groove. I'm Mike Canary. Keep listening. Now I want you to clap your hands, stomp your feet, jump up and down, do anything that you want to do. Next time on Three Song Stories. And living in Oklahoma, it was great because I could put on the leather vest and the cowboy hat and the boots and everything. I like that image. You oh, got man. Pictures? Was, you got to send uh, us oh, some pictures. I hope there's no pictures. <laughs>